0: to the Old Testament book of Daniel. One more time, Daniel chapter six is our text today. The title of the message is cross-cultural courage. After today, Lord willing, we'll be exactly halfway through our study of this wonderful Old Testament book of Daniel. From the, begin- from the beginning of the study, we have noted the courage of Daniel and his three friends. They had convictions and they stood upon them. And these men had obviously been grounded in truth and integrity back in Israel. I suspect, by godly parents. And when they were kidnapped by Nebuchadnezzar, taken from their home and from their family and everything they knew, they were well-prepared to stand on truth, even if it cost them everything. And several times it almost did. You remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of that statue. And he said, if one of my wise men are not able to interpret the dream, they're all gonna be torn limb from limb. And Daniel fell into that category Of course, the Lord granted him mercifully the ability to interpret that dream and he did faithfully. And then his three friends, of course, uh, wouldn't bow down to that literal statue that Nebuchadnezzar had constructed there in the plains of Dura. And they were cast into the fiery furnace, but God, of course, protected them as well. Chapter five, last week, uh, we saw a stunning chain of events. Many years have passed from the end of chapter four to the beginning of chapter five. There's a new king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had passed away. This man by the name of Belshazzar had come on the scene. And Daniel apparently was the forgotten man. Forgotten by the king, but of course not by God. The king Belshazzar was having a drunken party even as his enemies were about to storm the gates and uh, God wrote on the wall, very literally. And what he wrote on the wall, the king could not decipher. And so the wise queen came in and said, There is a man who can decipher this. And Daniel was summoned, and he said, I will give the interpretation, though he cared not for the king's rewards. And it said this Mene, Mene, Tikal, Uparzin, which translated means weighed to light divided. And it was speaking of Belshazzar and his kingdom. It was not substantive. It lacked gravitas. It lacked holiness. It lacked virtue. It lacked righteousness. And so it was going to be divided. And it was divided, of course. The Medo-Persian empire came along. History tells us that uh, the long lasting emperor, the Medo-Persian empire was a man by the name of Cyrus the Great. But that's not who ruled over Babylon immediately. That was a man who is described here as Darius the Mede. Now, there are a lot of theories about who Darius the Mede is. There's not a lot about him in secular history. Um, there've been a lot of speculations and uh, theories about whom he may be. I recommend to you the work of uh, Dr. Stephen Anderson who wrote his doctoral dissertation on who Darius the Mede might be. And he is convinced that it was a man by the name of Cyarx Ares II. Now, this is who Xenophon, the uh, famous Greek historian believed it to be as well. And that would make him the father-in-law of Cyrus the great. And so there's no evidence that uh, when the Medes and Persians merged their empires, it was through warfare. It was a peaceable thing. And it was arranged obviously through marriage. And so when uh, this gentleman known in the Bible as Darius the Mede passed away, then Cyrus the great took over and ruled by himself upon the throne of this great Persian empire. But the truth is, It really doesn't matter who Darius the Mede is because he's not the hero of the Bible, is he? In fact, Daniel's not even the hero of the Bible. God is, as we often say here, but Daniel is God's man. And so the thesis statement I want to make about Daniel 6 is this, kingdoms and cultures and governments will come and go, but God's faithful people will last until he calls them home. And Daniel is a great example of this. So let's dive into the book of Daniel in chapter six. Let's read the first three verses to begin. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. And then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Well, the first thing we see here is the cream. They say the cream always rises to the top. This, of course, is a dairy reference. I have an uncle who uh, years ago operated a dairy farm when I was a little boy. And I loved to watch him milk the cows. It was uh, one of those mechanized operations where the cows would come in at the same time twice a day. Uh, they would be milked. The milk would passed through tubes overhead and deposited in the next room in a great stainless steel vat. But whether you put milk in a stainless steel vat or a ceramic pot, one thing is certain the cream will rise to the top. And Daniel was the cream of the people of this Babylonian empire, whatever situation he was in, he always distinguished himself from those around him. Let me give you just a few examples back up to chapter one and look at verse 17. And as these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams Then, at the end of the days, which the King had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar, the King talked with them and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the King's personal service. You remember that Daniel and his free friends had refused the the king's table and his wine. And uh, they struck a deal with their supervisor uh, to watch them for a period of time to see if they suffered loss. But the truth was that uh, they appeared healthier than any of their peers. Not only were they healthier, they were more intelligent and they were more wise. And they proved that time and time again through their lives. Go to chapter two, for example, in verse 46. Daniel has interpreted this dream of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering of fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon and Daniel made request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. And then chapter four, verses six through nine, the king again has another vision, this vision of the great tree Daniel's called in once again, he interpreted And this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, he says, so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him saying, "O Belteshazzar chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, And no mystery baffles you, you tell me the vision of my dreams, which I have seen along with its interpretation. And then finally last week in verse 29, a new king has the handwriting on the wall interpreted for him. And his response is this, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. So here we have it in every chapter. The cream rises to the crop, to the top. Now it's an entirely new kingdom in culture as we come to chapter six. In fact, entire civilization, the Babylonians had passed away and they've been replaced by the Medo-Persians. So note this in your Bible next to Daniel six, character transcends kingdoms. Character transcends kingdoms. Daniel, when he was born, was born in Israel. And then he was kidnapped and taken off to Babylon under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar passed away and Belshazzar came on the scene. And then Belshazzar was overthrown by the Medo-Persians and Darius the Mede became the king. And then after a couple of years, he died and Cyrus the Great rules. And we'll see him a little later on in the book of Daniel. So five kings come and go and Daniel is still rising to the top. Character transcends kingdoms. You know, that's really how we try to hire around here. If you've ever served on our personnel committee or uh, one of our staff search committees, you know, in our first meeting, I always draw draw on the dry erase board and I draw an X and a Y intercept. And the X stands for character and the Y stands for skills. And I always give the same speech and I tell the committee, we want to hire someone who is up and to the right. We want to hire someone who is high in skill but high in character. And then I always end the first meeting by saying this, if we can only have one of those two, let's hire the person with character. Because you can learn a skill, can't you? We've all learned skills that we weren't born with. But if you lack character, it's going to be a hard hill to climb because character is mostly fixed early in life. Way down in Israel, when Daniel and his three friends were growing up, They had their character fixed and it was a character of truth and integrity. And in observing our own culture recently, I have noted that common sense is not as common as I thought at one time. And character is even less common. But what is very common today and has always been is corruption. And so let's read verses four through nine as it relates to the corruption in the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse four, chapter six, then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to the governmental affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. And then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the documents that is its injunction. Now this is corruption and corruption revealed itself through the sin of envy, jealousy, the the green eyed monster. And so what happened was that uh, this king was wise and he divided his affairs across a vast empire into 120 districts. And each district had a prefect over it. And over 40 districts apiece were three commissioners. And so Daniel was one of three men who ruled over the entire Medo-Persian empire. But he did it so well and distinguished himself so superior to the other two commissioners that uh, the king says, I think I'll just put Daniel over the entire operation. The cream rose to the top again, didn't it? And so these other commissioners uh, didn't like that a bit. They were about to lose their position, prestige and job. And, and so they said, we've, we've got to, put some spies out. We got to dig up some dirt on old Daniel and, and get rid of him. And you know, they dug and dug and they didn't find any dirt because there was none to find. In fact, they came to the conclusion that we will never find anything against Daniel unless it has to do with his faith in God because he's totally devoted to God much more than he is to this his job or to this king. And so that's what they decided to do. They get together and uh, They decided to play upon the ego of the king. And so they said, oh, king, live forever. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Here's what we we wanna do. We wanna propose a month dedicated to worshiping you. And uh, if anybody worships any other deity, by the way, they had hundreds of deities they worshiped. If anyone worships any other deity than you, Darius the Mede, they have to be thrown in the lion's den. And Darius said, that sounds like a great idea. And so he quickly signed the document according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which means it was irrevocable, unamendable, could never be changed. And so he put his pen to paper and signed this document of corruption. This was conspiracy. They couldn't find one thing to condemn him with, and so they decided to Uh, vandalize or assassinate his character. R.C. Sproul said before he passed away a couple years ago that vandalism is a worse sin than stealing because it says if I can't have what you have, you can't have it and enjoy it either. And so I'll just deface it and defame it. And so what they try to do is to deface and defame Daniel's character because they couldn't have that kind of character or didn't so they didn't want him to have it either. And so we see here a very similar thing to what happened to the Lord Jesus some 500 years later. His accusers, the Pharisees, and the scribes, the Sadducees couldn't find anything against him. And so what did they do? They, they made up charges. They trumped up charges. And what do we find Jesus doing the very night of his arrest? We find him praying, don't we? And what do we find Daniel doing when he's arrested? Well, the Bible tells us that uh, he was praying. Look at verse 10, this is his commitment. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, note that he knew it had been signed. What did he do? He entered his house, now in his roof chamber, they had windows open towards Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. These corrupt politicians couldn't find anything against him legally, and so they made up a law. Daniel didn't change anything, and therefore they had to change the law to trap Daniel. Daniel did not hide, though, did he? He went up just as he had done every day. He opened his windows towards Jerusalem, which tells us something about Daniel. He was not corrupted by the culture. He's an old man by this point, probably in his 80s. He's been there for 70 years. And you'd think by then he'd become one of them, but he hadn't. Just as he had been doing for 70 years, I take it. He looks towards Jerusalem and he remembers his God. His heart is still with Israel. He did not hide. I don't think he was flaunting the law by opening the doors. He just kept doing what he had always been doing. And as we've said here many times, we are to obey the law until the law prohibits what God commands. That's what his three friends did. They were told they had to bow down and worship this false idol every time the music played. And they said, we don't have to think about that. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your idol. Daniel was the same way. I'm not changing my commitment just because the laws have been changed. He was prepared for the consequences. God had not promised him that he would be delivered. Now he'd seen it happen before. I think he had tremendous faith that had been encouraged by the times that God had rescued he and his friends before, but he had no lifetime guarantee that he wouldn't die for the sake of his God. Now let's come to a conundrum beginning in verse 11. Then these men came by agreement, these are the conspirators and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. And then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, this statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day." Then, as soon as the King heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the King and said to the King, recognize O King, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute, which the King establishes may be changed." This is a conundrum. He's called on the horns of a dilemma, this King. These corrupt politicians had used his ego against him and he knew it. They had tricked him into signing an injunction that could never be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians. And by the way, we still have that phrase today, right? If some edict goes forth that we say will never be changed, we say may it be according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. And here's the thing about this king. He liked Daniel. Not only did he like him, he depended on him. He had entrusted one third of his entire kingdom to his care, and he did such a great job, he was ready to put him over the entire kingdom. And so this was one guy he could not afford to lose. Let me just say a little aside here. I say this to young men who are going into the workforce when we talk sometimes. Any advice I could give you about the workforce today would be this, make yourself indispensable to your employer. Christians, you ought to be the best worker wherever you work. And what I mean by that, you may be laid off, especially in these uncertain economic times, by no fault of your own. You're just with economic circumstances, they may have to let you go. But here's what I'm saying. If your boss has to furlough you or let you go, you ought to make it hurt. That is, if they have to let you go, they have to do it with their, their teeth gritted. Because the last thing they want to do is lose someone as valuable as you. And that's the way Daniel was. Wherever he was, he worked so hard. The cream rose to the top. He got responsibility and and they could not think of, of not having him in their empire. Now, that didn't cost you a thing. That's all free right there. So verses 16 through 24 now, let's read about the cats. That's what we think about when we think about Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. And so the cats, verse 16, then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of the nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. And the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. And the king rose at dawn, the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. We had come near the den of Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, "Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions." And then Daniel spoke to the king, "O king, live forever! My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I have." I was found innocent before him and also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. And then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. and They cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bone. Now, this likely is the image most of us have when we think about the book of Daniel, this painting I've told you about in the first Bible that I own. But don't forget that Daniel's in his 80s. He's not a young man. He's, he's likely in somewhat fragile health, and so he's cast in the lion's den, and that indignity alone would be enough to uh, do most people in. But, but then they sealed over the den with a stone and the king put his signet ring. I take a wax on it so that it couldn't be broken. Does that remind you of anything? I told you about Jesus' trial and, and the fact that when they came to arrest him, he was in prayer is similar to Daniel. It's also similar that when Jesus was placed in that borrowed tomb, they sealed it with a stone and the governor's signet was, was placed upon it, we believe. And so here, here's a lot of imagery that is similar to the Lord's Jesus. But but Daniel was not Jesus. The big difference between Daniel and, and Jesus is that Jesus was really dead and he rose again. Daniel didn't die in this circumstance. God preserved him through an angel. An angel was sent, Daniel said, who closed the mouths of the lion. It wasn't that they weren't hungry. By the way, the liberal theologians have done gymnastics to try to figure out why the lions didn't eat Daniel. Maybe he had over the years been feeding them a little bit and made pets out of them, they would say, or maybe uh, he he simply, uh, they had eaten right before then and and weren't hungry. Well, we we know that's not the case because this little notice placed in that as soon as these other folks came in, they gobbled them up before they even hit the ground. This is a miracle. There's no two ways about it. And by the way, when those lions obeyed that angel, to my knowledge, it was the last time in history where a cat ever obeyed a command. (laughs) But they did because they were creatures created by God. And God is sovereign over all of his creation, isn't he? He uses them as he sees fit. And just as Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. These conspirators meant these lions for evil, but God meant it to show forth His glory. Because that's why God does everything He does, isn't it? To show His glory. And we see that beginning in verse 25, by yet another pagan king, the third in five and a half chapters by my recollection, who gives glory to Jehovah God. Verse 25, then Darius the king, wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever." He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The cream, once again, has has risen to the top. Why? Because Daniel had determined as a teenage boy that for the rest of his life, so long as he had breath in his lungs and a beat in his heart that he would spend every day for the glory of God. And so he did into his eighties. And so did, did God receive the glory? He sure did. This most powerful man in the world sent out an open letter, the second open letter from the second King so far already in the book of Daniel, which he said to all of not only his constituency, but to all the other kings, his peers of the other empires and kingdoms. And he declares that the true God is Daniel's God. He told how God had delivered him from the lions. So from the lips of a pagan king, God received glory. By the way, that ought to be our aim every day too, isn't it? Reminds me of what a famous pastor once said, speaking of his sermons, He said, my aim every Sunday is not for you to say, what a great sermon. My aim every Sunday is for you to say at the end of the sermon, what a great God. This was the aim of Daniel's life. Not for people to say, wow, what a great hero Daniel was. And he was, nothing wrong with having biblical heroes or even modern day heroes who are godly examples to you. So long as you understand, it's not about them. It's about the God that that they serve. And let's just be reminded, God is pleased to bless the people that are intent on glorifying him, but don't take that too far. Some have taken that to mean that if I have enough faith, that uh, we've somehow backed God in a theological corner and that he is bound to give me my laundry list of hopes and dreams. I heard a false teacher say one time, speaking of a text like this one, if not this one, there it is, cut that out of your Bible. That is a receipt. And you take that receipt to God in prayer and you hold it up to him and say, here's my receipt. You have to give me everything I want. That is not what this is. This is not a receipt for your hopes and dreams or my hopes and dreams. This is a testimony of the greatness and glory of God. And he has not obligated himself to rescue us every time we get ourselves in a corner. He is not obligated to keep giving us promotion after promotion. He was pleased to do that with Daniel because he's sovereign and he can, but remember what Daniel's friend said, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not gonna worship these false idols. So uh, let me make some concluding comments here. Speaking of Daniel chapter six. Again, not just to men, but but all those who work in the secular world here. Be the most valuable employee you can be. The Bible says, do your work as unto the Lord and not unto men. The Apostle Paul in his epistles talked about uh, when we work, don't do it as men pleasers. That is, don't just work hard when the boss is around and the second he's out of sight, you're slacking off. No, when you're doing your work as unto the Lord, you know, the boss is always around because the boss is not Joe Smith over in the corner. The boss is Jehovah God. And so when you are living your life and doing your work for the glory of God, I promise you, it will please your supervisor and he will take note just as Pharaoh did Joseph's work. And just as Nebuchadnezzar did Daniel's work and Belshazzar after him and the next king after him, all the way down to Cyrus, the king of Persia. So so be the, the most valuable employee you can be. Not just for the things you get for that. You're going to get noticed, especially in our world today, if you work hard and have integrity, you're going to get pr- promoted. But, But don't take that as a as a license to an easy life. In fact, in the New Testament, the scripture says, all those who live godly can expect what? Persecution. Daniel's life wasn't one constant party. There were times where he was thrown to the lions. There was times where people stabbed him in the back. There were times where people forgot about him for decade after decade. And yet he continued to faithfully serve the Lord. So. Be the most valuable employee you can be. Secondly, do everything for God's glory. Whether you eat or or drink, whether you get up or lay down, whatever you do throughout the day, do it for the glory of God. In fact, uh, the famous Westminster Catechism says that's our purpose in life, isn't it? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then I'd say this. Be the most valuable employee you can be. Do everything for God's glory and do it consistently for a long time. Anybody can do it for a little while, right? You can fake anything for a short period of time. Daniel wasn't faking it. This was who he was. And that's proven that there's a 70-year swath of his life laid bare for anyone to read about. And what do we find? Consistency. Chapter one, consistency as a teenager. Chapter two, consistency as a young adult. Chapter four, as an older man, consistently. Chapter five, as a man in his 80s. And in chapter six, when everyone turned their back on him, he's still doing what he did when he was 16 years old. Praying, serving the Lord, giving God the glory. And so the Bible says give honor to whom honor is due. And so when someone serves the Lord faithfully over a lifetime, it's not wrong to say, well done. We ought to say, young people, here's a life you can look up to. Grandparents, parents, that, that, that's the kind of aspirations we ought to have. Not that we're perfect, but that we have such a consistent life that grows in sanctification consistently over 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, whatever the Lord in sovereignty chooses to give us, that our children and grandchildren can look to that and say, that one was real. That was a true believer. That was someone who talked the talk and walked the walk. Do it consistently over a long time. And then while you're doing it, stand by your convictions. Stand by your your, your convictions. Our society... Our culture needs some salty Christians who draw lines in the sand and say thus far and no farther. This is what I believe, and this is how I'm going to order my life. And here's how I'm going to make my decisions, and here's how I'm going to spend my money and invest in my retirement. Here's how I'm not going to do this, and I am going to do this based on what you believe the Word of God says and teaches. Stand by your convictions. Now that may lead to some problems. The Bible doesn't say, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, everything's gonna go great. You can expect problems and persecution. It came to Daniel and his friends. And so I'd say this finally, once you have drawn the line in the stand and you are standing firm, leave the results to God. That's his business. Don't game the system, in other words. Uh, there, there are some people who uh, point out their virtue all the time. Say, look at me. Look how bold I am. Look how much integrity I have. Uh, look, look how I take this stand against society. And what they're doing is, is they're promoting their own brand. And, and they're trying to use what God wants for his glory, to elevate themselves in status and in the community and especially in their sphere of influence. So I I would say, be the most valuable employee you can be whether you're a farmer, doctor, lawyer, or pastor. Do everything for God's glory. Do it consistently over a lifetime. Stand by your convictions no matter the cost. And if God chooses (laughs) to give you the corner office, or God chooses to give you a high position, or if God chooses to give you a place of great influence in your company or even in the nation, that's his business. Give the glory to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we we thank you for yet another example here in the book of Daniel of a man of conviction, of integrity, of truthfulness, and of consistency. And Father, I, I want for myself and for all the men and women of this church to be known by those descriptors. And yet, Lord, we know this story, even chapter six, is not about Daniel. It's not even about that miracle that took place in the lion's den. This story is about your glory and how you transformed a wicked pagan king and did it so thoroughly that he felt compelled to write an open letter to every king around him to tell them they're worshiping the wrong God. And Lord, we have a lot of people right here in the United States who are worshiping the wrong God. They're worshiping the God of materialism and entertainment and pleasure and comfort so, Father, I pray that you'd raise up men and women, boys and girls from this church who would be salty, who would uh, be noticeably different, who stand on the Bible and on the convictions that they learned there, who draw lines in the sand. There are certain things they will do and certain things they won't do for your glory. And then, Father, I I pray that you would uh, allow a lost and dying world to see what's different about us, is that we don't live for the here and now, we live for the kingdom to come and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then when they ask us about the hope that is within us, help us, Father, to have the name of Jesus and the gospel ready on our lips. Help us to always have our default setting set to yes when it comes to sharing the gospel not so that people would pat us on the back or elevate us in status, but that our God, that our Lord and Savior would be glorified among people where he's not. Lord, when that happens, we'll thank you so much that we got to be a small part in fulfilling your great commission. And we give you glory in advance for what you're going to do in the future here. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.